0: The We're LCC podcast is a monthly show that comes out on the 9th of every month. But if you hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app, you'll never need to remember that because the show will automatically be there. So go ahead and hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app now.
1: We are LCC, a podcast emanating from the halls of Lower Canada College on Royal Avenue in Montreal. Here's alumni officer Christine Jones.
0: Welcome to the We Are LCC podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Christine Jones, your host, LCC alum, parent, and the school's alumni officer. Today we are joined by Chris Olive, physics and science teacher here at LCC. Chris has a long standing background and career as a teacher, but as you'll soon find out, his passion for education and learning goes well beyond the traditional classroom. Thank you for joining us. We're so happy to have you as one of our guests on the We Are LCC podcast. So I'll start by just asking you to tell us a bit about your own journey and career path and why you decided to become a teacher or educator.
2: Well, it's it's actually kind of fun because it's one of those things where I can tell the students about my experiences and lessen some of their worry about stuff because there's a certain amount of assumption on their parts and often parents parts that a straight line path to some career is the right way to go. I went to John Abbott uh, in pure and applied sciences on the West Island where I grew up. And I then applied to McGill and was accepted for biology. After a year, I decided eh, not my thing. I disliked some of the labs and some of the stuff like that, so I switched over to computer science, which is another thing that I was interested in. And so I got my degree in comp sci. Eventually, graduated, then started working for a firm called Infosys that uh, built stuff for Petro Canada and some of the some of back end stuff for them. And uh, that was pretty handy because I got to learn a fair amount about Canada because I had to talk to people in remote parts of Canada where there were Petro Canada refineries and things like that. And so. That was actually great for me, but I came to realize that helping multinational and gigantic corporations make money was not really something that, in the end, I, I couldn't imagine going through 50 years of a career or whatever it was going to be and have that as the only thing that I'd done. It really became obvious. I mean, I'd always liked tutoring people and helping people understand stuff. So, it took a while for me to recognize that, you know, I'd spent some time doing computer science and, you know, I got a degree and was, I thought I was pretty decent at it. But in the end, like ah, this is what I want to do. So I tell students this all the time. So I decided to go back and do an education degree and I got an education degree specializing in sciences, minors in biology and physics because I still love those and I wanted to teach them. And as it happens, I double specialize in sciences, which was quite unusual. Most people do sciences and maths to try to improve their hiring possibilities and whatnot. And I ditched that. And it's like, ah, I just want to do sciences. I could have done math because my computer science degree was nonstop math all the time, but I didn't really want to. I, myself, and one other person were the only two double science specialists. So we got to work in the McGill Science Teaching Labs. And the prof didn't have really anything for us to do because they're like, nobody does this. So we got to rebuild the labs and I got to spend a ton of time working with hardware and fish tanks and all kinds of stuff. And I got to learn all the science sort of teaching equipment that I never got to see in any of my classes because I was rooting through all these storerooms and things of stuff that were scarcely used and you know, McGill, whatever, hundreds of years old and teaching has been around there for ages. So I like all this physics equipment, Oh, I see how you teach with this and that. So it was actually great, but I was sort of self-directed. And then turns out my prof was on the board of LCC and he told them, you should take a look at this guy and maybe hire him, which is how I got a call from LCC, which was pretty handy. And it just meant that I slid into my LCC job.
0: In your opinion, then at what point in their life does someone become a teacher? And then further to that point, what is the goal of education in general?
2: Okay, well, right into the heavy stuff. Yeah, I have to say that uh, going through a teaching degree and, and sort of starting out along this path before I was ever doing it officially, I think a lot of the best teachers are teachers before they ever set foot in a university to be so-called educated how to be one. And, you know, like so many things, you can teach people to do stuff, but at some level, you can't get beyond a certain level of performance. I'm not a great teacher teacher by sort of professional measures in some ways, because I don't have detailed lesson plans. I don't have the insane levels of organization that some people do. And that's very beneficial. And it's, it's really, it's a failing with me, truthfully. But in the classroom, that's where I do my thing. That's why online school is not my best thing, because I love being in front of a class there's a high level of performance in this. So, you know, I, I did drama all through high school as well as my sciences stuff. And it is absolutely, absolutely an act being up there in front of the students. Now I don't act a lot. I'm mostly me up there anyway, which is why I occasionally curse in class and things like that is because making the point, you know, you have to shock the audience a little bit and you have to wake them up. And you know, there's, there's these games that you play when you're on stage that actually apply to teaching as well, if done properly. If you're sitting behind a desk, you're not teaching, not really, because there's got to be, at some level, people respond to enthusiasm. And if you're delivering the best message in the world with no enthusiasm, at some point you will lose your audience. So I have all sorts of stuff in my room. I dance around. I have things that I pull out of the ceiling because I've installed stuff attached to the superstructure of the building so that I can demonstrate. I teach physics. So this sort of stuff naturally comes along. I can have lots of demos and things like that. But I've taught other classes as well, and, you know, half of the game is getting people in trance with it. And that's why education is a little bit more complicated than just being in school. Schooling could be very easily differentiated from education in many ways. Education is the broader, you know, uh, learning experience that somebody gets in any given situation. And there's a hell of a lot more teachers out there than have that written on their resume. As an example, at LCC, one of the facilities guys, Brett, is the crossing guard, and his impact on the kids every single day is huge because he knows who they are. He says hello. He's always cheery no matter how he's feeling, and that is an education in itself. This is how you comport yourself when people matter, and this is what he's teaching them, and everybody does this, and it's easy to forget sometimes, and you get to see This is a teacher more officially, you know, because I teach them a certain thing. I teach them physics, but I'm also modeling all sorts of other behaviors. What matters? And it comes out in the way I run my classroom. The one rule that I have that is in file in my classroom is you do not get to interfere with anybody else's education. So if you're doing something disruptive, I throw you out. It's straightforward. I'm not going to negotiate because it's not about you. At this point, you're the problem and you get out. So that's the one thing that I say is absolutely tatamount, is there's people there who want to learn. And the world is full of people who want to learn. And so education, it's an official giant kind of monolith in some ways that has you know it's got its industry grind as well as everything else does in the world and it doesn't have to be that way because education takes place in smaller bits you know the apprenticeship model doesn't work anymore because there's simply too many people that need to be educated for the number of masters out there to be able to show these skills to them so schooling has developed over the years to do different jobs and these days you know everyone's sort of thinks about being in education to get educated. But what it means now is not what it used to mean, right? I mean, once upon a time, you had, you know, the sort of obvious careers, priests, teachers, lawyers, doctors, these sorts of things were, you know, professions that you would go to further education for. Otherwise, you stopped at grade eight. The world is a more complicated place. That's not as easy an option as it once was. But there's lots of ways of learning. and. People get stuck on this treadmill, educational treadmill. I'm hardly the originator of this idea. and It's got its limitations as an analog, but people want, you know, okay, fine. Primary school, secondary, then you apply to post-secondary of some stripe, whether it be Sagep, University, Masters, this sort of thing. And I think that's unfortunate because there's a lot of paths to get you to doing something worthwhile, to doing something that's meaningful to your life. Like I, It took me a while to discover it. I love being in school. I love being in classes. If they paid me to go to university, I'd be there again. I'm a generalist in a lot of ways. seems weird from a physics guy where people give you this horrified look that, oh, my God, you must have done so much physics. Yeah, I did a lot of physics, and I really liked it a lot. But I never did master's or PhD level stuff because there's always something else that I was interested in. And I I really like forming webs of connections, which is something that I bring to my classroom a lot. And so education is about how you connect the things that you know to other things that you know. And doing that comes in a myriad of different ways. I mean, there's coaches at LCC that make gigantic impressions, far larger than any teacher does on the kids on that team. And that's because the kids are plugged into what's going on there. They care about what's going on. So the coach has actually a tremendous amount of power, because you can model whatever behavior. I mean, unfortunately, you can see it in some of the you know parents that you get as hockey parents are the most famous, but you know I I've coached soccer for years and soccer parents have their own band of crazy and and the coach to a certain extent is protection against that because if you're a good coach you can model how to do the job of being a player well but they also show how they react to different things and so I I, I work at that because I. You know, I always have criticisms of refereeing and soccer and it's one of those things. And I have to control myself and I don't always do a great job always, but I'm always polite. I, it's never, you know, that sort of thing. But you can get overwrought and forget that you are teaching while these things are happening.
0: Right. I mean, to your point about the human connection. And I like that you bring in, you know, people in the community, like of the crossing guard and coaches, because there's human connection and all of that, as we know, and people that can teach our kids things more than what they learn in the classroom. Was there anyone in your past that inspired you when you were a student, someone you remember yourself? And if so, who was it? and, And how were you inspired or touched by them?
2: Yeah, this is one of these ones where, you know, this leads into some story about my mentor who guided me in this sort of stuff. The problem is my episodic memory is utter garbage. I do not remember historical stuff at all. I remember interconnections between things. And so that's my strength, and I, I know that, and it's a joke among my friends and my wife about exactly how bad I am at remembering events. I mean, for some people, you know, life-changing events and things like that, they'll remember them no problem. Me, at one point, I, uh, we were camping with some friends, and I was messing around and, and kicking at some rocks at the edge of a cliff, and the cliff collapsed, and I slid down, and everyone assumed I was dead. So I slid, and anyway, I caught myself partway down. The rocks all ended up at the bottom, this giant pile, and I slid down. And other than some scrapes on my hands, I was totally fine. And so they all remember this and tell this story with exacting detail. And I don't really remember it that much. I'm like, yeah, I know it happened, but my memories of it are as though I'm watching a movie. And those aren't real memories.
0: You're sure it's not because you hit your, you hit your head and you lost part of the memory?
2: I'm unwilling to go on record and saying I didn't. Seriously, all that happens is my hands were scraped. And it's an interesting test for people because I find neuroscience fascinating. And it's one of those things that I spend a lot of time reading about in my own time. And I know how memories work is if you play back a memory, you tell the story. It sort of erases it and it gets rewritten as you are telling the story. And so I know because I think about this episode, I think about it. I know that I don't remember really what was going on because I'm picturing it as a movie. And I couldn't do that with my eyes, right? I didn't see it as an outsider's view. And yet that's the way I remember it. And there's all kinds of stuff like that. And you ask people this, and it's a great way of determining whether you're remembering something real or you're remembering something constructed. And I remember this all the time because that's what I have to do with students is they construct what they learn. And so it's extremely important to remember that they're building this all the time. They are always constructing their understanding of the world. And so that's why, you know, you go to school and you learn about constructivist teaching. And what does that really mean? It means you got to shake up their foundations a little bit, have them play them back, see why they might be wrong, and then give them something newer, more accurate or whatever to try to fill in those missing spots because everybody's got their misapprehensions of stuff, things that are factually wrong. And we're full of them. We all are. Our memories are terrible. I mean, even people who have supposedly photographic memories, I had a student who claimed it once. And I rearranged 32 things in my classroom and he came back in and got four of them. And so that was my favorite way of annihilating that particular idea. It makes for a great story. And that comes back to another thing that I do a lot of, which is storytelling. And it's really important because you can absolutely, absolutely see on any student's face the difference between just giving them information and giving them a story with context and all these sorts of things, because we are storytelling creatures. One of my favorite authors calls us Pans Narins, the storytelling chimpanzee. And that's absolutely, in my mind, true. And that's why I say that acting is part of it. I'm telling a story. I tell the story of physics. I tell the story of physics by acting and moving and shoving things around and breaking things and exploding stuff. It, it's a story. But I also associate it with people in history who were doing weird things, like people who had, you know, artificial gold noses. And, that's, and then all of a sudden, like, students remember that. And it's just, it's the way we work. I know that I had certain teachers, especially in high school. High school often does this because you get to interact with people longer in high school than you do in most SeJep contexts. I had some fantastic SeJep teachers, and a couple of my profs at university were great. I'm discrediting probably some fantastic people out there who taught me things, because frankly, I don't remember. I remember what they taught me in most cases, but I don't remember them particularly. I mean, one of the few people I actually remember is one of my supervisors when I was doing my student teaching. And he teaches at John Abbott. He's doing outdoor education now, but he was a physics teacher at McDonald High School, my old high school. And John was fantastic. And he taught me a bunch of stuff about being a master teacher. And that's one of those things that, you know, is probably the only one I remember. And I don't have a great origin story for this, unfortunately.
0: I like the circling back and touching on the other issues as well. So just to go back, I know that you did touch a bit upon the difference between schooling and learning, and that you've quoted the late Terry Pratchett, the humorist and author, his quote where he says, Dodger hadn't had a day's proper schooling. Instead, his life had mostly been spent learning things, which is surprisingly rather different. So can you speak to that a little?
2: Absolutely. I mean, obviously, it's a rewrite of Charles Dickens' The Artful Dodger, one of the characters in Oliver Twist. Terry Pratchett, if you want somebody who influenced me, I think he's probably got me thinking more about the philosophy of being human than anybody else, for sure. I've read all the various philosophers of various types, from ancient to more modern ones, you know, Heigl to Pinker, because I'm interested in lots of stuff. And I like philosophy, and I like to think about why we do things as opposed to the what. I think he taught me more than anybody else. And he hits the nail right on the head there. And his vocabulary is dead on. Schooling is what you do in school. Learning is what you hopefully do everywhere. And, you know, it's one of the phrases that comes up in education among professionals, this idea of lifelong learning. You know, people are constantly telling you these days, oh, yeah, you're going to change careers three or four times, five or six, whatever the number is during your lifetime. And so you have to be learning things all the time. And there is excitement in doing so. And I I really like that. I'm trying to learn new stuff all the time. And I've learned how to do it. I've learned how to teach myself stuff a bit. But students need help doing it. So there's, you know, schooling absolutely has its value. I think there are definitely good reasons to teach and to send kids to school rather than test them on things, right? And, you know, this is a discussion that's happening in teachers lounges and stuff all the time is most of us anyway don't love testing testing is is unfortunately part of the game but does it have to be i mean standardized tests are an example of something that is found in schooling and isn't really found at all in learning and it's actually you know standardized tests are meant to show how you compare to everybody else but nobody else's experience is really like yours And the fact is that if you want to look at neuroscience, we don't really still know what intelligence is. And let me tell you, there's an endless number of arguments about what intelligence should be defined as. And so having a standardized test is only standardized into the questions are all the same, but people bring different insights into these. And Standardized testing is very limited in what it can tell you. And unfortunately, it's not a great measure of a lot of things. And so schooling can be reduced down into that. And I see it. I see students that come in and they are exceptional test takers. And I wouldn't get into a car with them because I don't think they've ever learned how to drive properly, despite the fact that they may have all of the 100% returns from their theoretical stuff and i worry about those kids when they leave school about what they're going to be like and people stay in education sometimes just because they don't know what else to do they've never really looked outside of those narrow constraints and so if you're worried more about the schooling then i think you're missing out and man you're you're in school for those times in your life that can be fun and they're freeing and as an adult i have constraints about what i can do and i have a family and i have to support them and i can't just pick up and take off and as a student it's frightening because, of course, you have to choose where to go to university. And then after that, the world is in front of you. And that can be either intimidating or incredibly liberating. And if you're just out there to learn, it's not a big deal. But if you're transitioning from schooling into the real world, then wow, you can be in for some serious shocks, unfortunately. I mean, that sort of takes me to an idea that I wanted to mention, which is, I have a bunch of friends, and we—some of us have been friends since high school, some of which from university, some post-university—who are doctors and engineers and and professional people of that ilk. Smartest guy I know is a farmer. He went to McGill University, did ag, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Dude's brilliant, learns stuff like crazy, and he's never ever worried unduly about school, but you know, he's head of the Soil Council of Canada and he's doing, you know, he's consulted by ministers and stuff all the time. And he never sweated the marks particularly. He was good. You know, he was like me. He was a pretty lazy student in some ways. But we got the job done because we were busy learning stuff all the time. And so when you're doing that, you can impress people once you leave schooling. Learning school runs out. At some point, you leave the school environment, you have to know a whole bunch of other stuff about the world. And teachers, if they're good, can teach you some of that stuff. But you really got to get outside and, you know, do things, which is, you know, one of the reasons why I like that LCC, for instance, has a community service requirement and has done for ages, because that gets you hopefully, fingers crossed, if you take it for what it's supposed to be, gets you outside of your realm of regular experiences. There was an organization I volunteered for for many years called Leave Out Violence, run by, well, started by a woman named Twinkle Redberg, who's associated with LCC, though I didn't know that at the time. And uh, her husband was killed foiling a robbery. And she said she disappeared into her own head for quite some time. And then recognized that she could either let it run her life or she could take steps to try to deal with it. And she dealt with it by starting an organization to help youth at risk. And I got involved with them because I volunteered at one point. I was doing computer work for them for years to try to make sure that they weren't wasting their money on computer stuff and instead could use their money for programs and this sort of thing and that got me seeing parts of the world that i never saw i grew up on the west island my father was the registrar for McGill university and mcdonald campus my mom was a nurse i mean we were well enough off that i didn't get a lot of those sorts of experiences now i was lucky because i grew up in mcdonald campus and that's the agricultural and animal sciences part of mcgill and they're There's a lot more of the world there than there are in most places, because people come from all over the world to study agriculture at one of the best universities so that they can go back and be good at doing agriculture in countries that often are not nearly as industrialized as ours. And so I got to meet tons of people, way more than I would have elsewise. You know, the West Island not exactly the most diverse place on earth. White and Anglo pretty much sums it up most of the time when I was growing up. Now it's a little bit more diverse, but you know, still not a ton, but I I met dozens of people. I knew where Nigeria was before I knew where England was. Just because those are the people I was hanging out with. And you learn a lot on the outside. You learn outside of the world. That's where the learning happens. And yeah, so school is one of those things where it's important, but it's certainly not the end all and be all.
0: Mm-hmm. You started a little bit earlier talking about the students, and I just wanted to maybe switch gears a bit and talk about the student. And why, why would you say these days students are so deathly afraid of failure, and what would you say is being lost because of it?
2: Well, that actually dovetails nicely into what I was talking about, but the difference between schooling and learning. I meant to mention it previously when talking about my friends from university. Almost every one of us, regardless of accomplishments. I mean, aerospace engineers, engineering, physics people, doctors, all of them have that class that they failed. They have that class that kicked their ass and they did not do well in it the first time through. You learn an awful lot by failing. You learn more by failing and figuring out why you failed than you do by succeeding, mostly because people reflect on their failures a lot more than they do on their successes in many cases humans are naturally inclined to be risk averse. Risk aversion is generally regarded as a big sort of mental thing with humans is that we're afraid of what we lose than what we could potentially gain. And so losing a few marks somewhere can be frightening because you're thinking, I have to keep myself running at full speed on the treadmill. Learning in university how to fail, recover from that and keep going Everyone remembers that. I mean, you don't remember your courses. I barely use half the stuff I did in university. A oh, half. That's generous. A quarter of the stuff I learned in university. But by God, I remember failing that class and going, oh, man, okay, I really got to change my angle on this and do something different. And nobody was going to save me from it. And so that's something that is, in fact, in my opinion, lacking. And students, for reasons sometimes internal, sometimes or often external, worry unduly about that. And I understand. I do get it because, as long as you think that getting into that program and that school is the only measure of success, then you're always going to be frightened of making mistakes and learning stuff. One of the things I teach extracurricularly is robotics. And robotics down in the workshop is a different universe than it is outside of that place. And I have a totally different set of rules. you're know, you working with power tools, you're working with uh, drill presses and lathes and grinders and things like this. This is stuff that can kill you. And so my tolerance for people messing around is absolutely nil. But on the other hand, mistakes are totally fine because mistakes teach you a lot. Did you just destroy $100 worth of stuff? Yes. Do I fire you at this point? No, because you've learned a lesson that is incredibly valuable. I've sort of read interesting CEO type of stuff from people sometimes that it's maybe unwise to fire somebody who makes a you know $50,000 error or whatever. If they did it for the right reasons, then that's a lesson that you just paid for. And that employee is now probably going to be better at what they do if they didn't just learn to be afraid.
0: And maybe prevent others from making the same mistake.
2: Exactly. I mean, that's one of those institutional memory things. It's very hard to quantify and is massively important. I see that all the time at LCC. It's an interesting place because, of course, people are coming and going. And, you know, as the older statesman teachers leave, new ones with tons of energy come in and it's awesome. But, you know, there's people like me around that still remember some stuff, like when there's a nutrition committee talking about the food in the cafeteria, for instance. For years, this would continually be a thing where the parents would go, oh, the food's no good. And it always, 100% turned out that when they came and saw it, they're like, this is amazing. My kid is just super picky and is whining and lying to me. And unfortunately, that's the way it always ended up happening. And so remembering things like that is part of an institution. And it does come from... The right place, you know. People learn things in again different ways, and it's not always found in schooling. And sometimes it's failing. Like you know, those people show up, and it's interesting to watch people who will double down and then say, "Oh, there's still something wrong with the food," and yet clearly there isn't. So you have to learn at some point, I think, to fail elegantly, and it's not always easy to do. I, I have to say that I tell the students that all the time. I mean, I write, you know, three whiteboards these days of physics solution it spans you know 10 meters worth of writing and i get to the end and i go ah crap okay this is not the correct answer and i circle and i say this is wrong and okay so here's where you're going to learn kids because we're going to go back and find it and i dropped the sign somewhere or i did something like that and i tell them you know like i don't feel like somehow i'm i'm less of a person because i made the mistake i'm like yeah whatever and so i go back and instead okay this is an opportunity to learn how do you fix a problem like this how do you learn you know, because if you do it correctly, like, oh, great, I'm, I'm fantastic. I learned how to do it. But there's no hiding from a failure. And if you learn to fail, then it's not as...
0: Catastrophic. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Well, exactly. It's not fear-inducing anymore. And all of a sudden, you're like, ah, I'm going to try it. What the hell? So if I, do, I don't do fantastically, then uh, no big deal. You know, uh, okay, so I tried it. And that's an attitude that can take you so much further than the paranoia and fear that so many students have. And it makes me sad. It makes me sad to watch them sometimes scared to death. And, you know, they'll argue over a quiz, you know, one mark on a quiz is worth 1%. And and like, kid, look, do the math with me. All right. I'm a physics guy. Let's do the math. 1% of a 15%, you know, one mark out of 15 on a 15% sort of thing out of a quiz, which is worth 5%. Congratulations. You're battling me. You're stressing yourself over 0.001% of your mark is this worth it? No, it certainly isn't. So you got to, you know, uh, getting hit in the face. I've watched students time and time again, bounce back from that kind of thing and come back with a renewed attitude. And I don't mind arguing for marks. I'll I'll go to the mat for, for stuff all the time. I'm like, no, you're wrong. Look, sorry. <laughs> like, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I have some leisure in this because I teach grade 10, 11, and 12. So I teach older students. They're closer to being adults. And so I can have these conversations. I also generally teach Courses that are not mandatory, which means you don't have to pass my classes necessarily, and so I can be a little un, you know, a little unkind at first to you. you think like, oh man, he's really mean. Yeah, I'm going to support you the whole time, but don't think I'm going to tell you that you weren't wrong because no, you were wrong. But so what? No big deal. I try to make it obvious when I make a mistake in the class. I'm like, oh well, so what? Let's fix it, and you know, off you go, and you just deal with it. And that gets lost sometimes. I think.
0: And so to that point and talking about how you are in your classroom, I know that you're passionate about virtue ethics and our listeners might not know necessarily what that is, but can you define what that means and and how do you teach them to your students and use them in your classroom?
2: Sure. Virtue ethics is a particular philosophy of ethics. There are many of them out there. And it is one that I like in particular because it's described as a set of attributes or goals to have. It's not an end point. They're all, at least the ones that I utilize, are ones that are universally regarded or almost universally regarded as positive. Because you can have little sort of anecdotal stories or whatever of lessons to be learned. For instance, you can say look before you leap, which is an admonition for caution. At the same time, the early bird gets the worm, which encourages people to go out and do stuff in front and, you know, and then you get a reward. So those two things are in pretty stark contrast. And you're like, well, which one do I believe today? And so people rarely have a structured sense of ethics. It's Not unheard of, but unless you're a philosopher, you probably haven't looked at this a lot. And so I like it because I take a look at it and go, okay, you know what? I fell over on this one today. I did not do a good job of it. So in my classroom, I have posted up on the board, well, up in the sort of the back of the room, a collection of these virtue ethics ideas often to remind myself, because it's not what the students aren't actually facing these. They're there. And so sometimes they'll look at them and, you know, whatever, they're bored at some point, look around or they're earlier than me or whatever excuse for it. So they look at them. And uh, every once in a while, I'll make them choose one that they think they're particularly good at and write something about it. But, you know, the truth is I'm a physics guy. And so I have to, in some way, slave to the fact that I have to go and do certain material. And physics doesn't instantly and people People's minds delve into philosophy. I think it does because physics reveals some things about the universe that greatly outstrip humans' abilities to appreciate them. And therefore, there's a certain humility that comes from this. So I do like talking about it to a little extent. But for instance, one of the sort of subheadings is courage. And under courage, you get things like bravery, persistence, integrity, vitality, zest all these things that can be striven for. And so I like to try to have those up in my classroom and to at least refer to them every couple of months or whatever, just to remind people and remind myself, look, there's there's a lot more to now than just what's happening right in front of us. The day I die, I want to be able to look at that and said I went forward on these things. You know, I've become better at doing a bunch of stuff in my life, but you know some of them matter and some of them don't. I'm a better driver than I was when I started, but when I die, who the hell cares? It couldn't be less relevant to me as a skill. And so I want to be better at being brave in certain environments. I mean, that's part of the reason why I'm reasonably well known around LCC for being loud about stuff, because it does require a certain measure of bravery, because in the end you know i'm not a superhero i can be let go if i'm a giant pain in everybody's but it hasn't happened yet because lots of people in the building want to hear opinions but you don't always get honesty and it's interesting because i see in my own coworkers sometimes not always just teachers but everybody sort of the same reluctance as students is sometimes you're afraid to put up your hand. It's not easy being the center of attention when you're asking a question like, well, why are we doing it this way? Sir, what is the relevance of this? And that applies to a lot of different situations. If you've ever sat there on a meeting and played buzzword bingo and wondered why your life has come to this, then there's a certain bravery to say, I got to get out of here, man. I just spent 20 minutes in this meeting and all I did is I heard the word synergy 17 times and you're like, I got to get out of here. So it shows up in places. And so I try to remind myself every day, okay, look, I, I, and this is by, you know, fault of me being me and my upbringing and whatnot is I can be an ass. My brother is, my father certainly is. My family is known for being loud, but the stuff that I've learned from my father and mother and family have stood me in really good stead. And, and, you know, I've been a pain in people's butts before and then get, 20 people come and say, thank you for saying something because they didn't feel confident to do so. And that's happened, you know, in classrooms when I've been in university and, you know, when I'm working places. So bravery is something that is weird to think that it's not going out there with a sword or whatever, a gun and shooting people. That's not bravery. That's stupidity. So instead, you know, bravery is when you feel like you have to overcome a fear, right? People who aren't afraid are never brave people who are afraid and overcome it are brave and that is a virtue so that's the sort of that's where it shows up for me when i'm thinking of these things
0: any final thoughts of anything you'd like to add in terms of education or your vision for the future of education
2: well it's sort of unfortunate i have no idea what the, the you know the audience is going to be but it's mostly people who have graduated i try to tell students all the time do not think That you have to follow a straight line. An example of this is when life is not the way it is right now. I would take my enriched students, only because there were size limitations, to the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame, the McIntyre Medical at McGill day. And they would go in and they would hear speeches and and they would see labs and they would talk to doctors and they would get all this stuff. At the end of the day, after learning all this stuff about brain science and and ocular behaviors and all sorts of crazy cool stuff, there was a career panel and, you know, selection bias, maybe, but every single person at that career panel did not follow a straight line. They did not go into medicine. They were not at the top that some people would say you could get in your field. You know, if you're, if you're teaching at a prestigious university's department of medicine, you probably know what you're about. And so that, for most people, is a pretty good measure of success. And none of them follow straight lines. That's the one thing I took away from that pretty strongly. This diversity that comes of learning from every situation is something that students need to recognize is important. Like when you go and apply to medical schools, they often have something called the poll model, which is what you should be sort of thinking about when you're trying to present yourself. And poll stands for paid, unpaid, learning, and leisure. Cause these are the things they're going to ask you about and learning is but one of those things. Like once you pass a certain threshold to apply to medicine, it's all that other stuff that does the job. For instance, I'm a science teacher. Not every science teacher is the same level of nerd that I am for sure. I do science stuff for my own entertainment, right? Whatever you can say, it makes me one dimensional, but I go in a lot of different directions. And that's something that I like to do. And I'm teaching myself this sort of stuff all the time, even though it has nothing to do. I haven't taught biology in decades, but I still love reading about it. I still love learning about it. And so I try to encourage the students to branch outside. Now, school is hard because school forces you to do all kinds of stuff you don't want to do. And it can leave a bad taste in your mouth sometimes. But if you're open to changing your direction, then maybe you treat these things that you didn't like as a possibility to learn something new. And this whole, you know, I want to sum it up, lifelong learner, as much as it's a buzzword, this is as bad as synchronicity or whatever, you know, sort of business equivalent buzzword you're looking for. You can still take that, get rid of the buzzwordiness and actually think, but wow, you know, I can improve at whatever it is that I want to do, whether it's, become more crafty or artistic or read more about science from places that actually know about it rather than some of the alternatives one can find on the internet. So yeah, learning for your entire life should be a goal. It should be something that you're striving for. And don't feel like deviations from a straight line are wasted. They will always teach you something if you have the right attitude.
0: Right. I love it. It's been enlightening. Thank you so much for the conversation.
2: Thanks for the opportunity. I, uh, you know, I, it's been a while since I've done any podcast things, so uh, it's good fun. Thanks for listening
1: to We Are LCC. For more, go to slash podcast and remember to hit subscribe or follow on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.
0: Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.
1: I'm Matt Kundel, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast.